three, four years ago when you said, actually, you know, we're in this industry. Yes, it's great for the planet, but also there's this huge commercially viable opportunity. People either didn't believe you. They were like, look, you're delivering a public good. You're sort of doing this whole thing. You'll hear that now all the time. I mean, obviously in the UK, you know, the whole sort of winding back on net zero. It's an anathema to me because I'm like, you're missing out on the economic opportunity. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Andrew Wordsworth, the CEO and co-founder of Sustainable Ventures. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us uh, on The Purposeful Strategist. Really looking forward to our conversation. Welcome. Well, delighted to be here and looking forward to the conversation likewise. Great. Maybe you could just kind of ease us into it a bit by describing a bit of what Sustainable Ventures does and also a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Andrew Wurzels. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Sustainable Ventures. I've been in the kind of low-carbon venture space for about 20 years now and founded Sustainable Ventures in 2011. And so for the past 12 years, uh, we've been basically dedicated to developing commercial solutions to the challenges of climate change and resource scarcity. Sustainable Ventures is now a team of about 30 people and we've, we've supported over 500 companies all addressing climate change in that time period. We do it in a variety of ways. We've got an investment arm approaching 50 pre-seed investments in the space. We work with organisations such as the, the Greater London Authority to provide incubation support, particularly to early stage companies, and we've done sort of over 300. I'm currently sat in Sustainable Workspaces, which is our 40,000 square feet workspace here in uh, London's Old County Hall, which is home to over a thousand uh, kind of clean tech innovators, all working in companies dedicated to tackling climate change. That sounds, if I could put it rather bluntly, like a lot of cash out without necessarily a lot of cash in. So where do you get the money to pay for the 30 people to provide this support and services? At the moment, we're currently wholly owned by the management team. Um, We have a mix of business models. Obviously, the workspace is a um, sort of classic workspace model. So we have tenants here who pay us rent or members who pay rent here slightly below market rate because we want to give them affordable and flexible workspace. We've taken out leases on the space here. The rest of the stuff is um, is basically sort of a consultancy services model. We get paid by providing that advice to people. We've also got a range of, of sort of SME services where we do sort of things like R&D tax credits, grant support, and uh, we have a design agency, for example. Looking back at my own experience starting our own business, you know, there were things that I didn't know how to do but actually we're really vital in terms of bringing money into our business as well. So we've basically taken that expertise and we use that to provide support to other similar startups and so on. And then the investment army raised about 1.6 million annually and deploy that into eight, 10 sort of startups as well. So that's a classic sort of investment model that we do. So yeah, so quite a complicated set of business models there, but if you do them in combination, they all seem to work. Doing in isolation, they're quite tough. Early stage companies are quite a challenging audience to some extent because startups, certainly until they've raised money, they don't have any cash to spend. So we try and be quite innovative in terms of finding different business models. you know, we talk about supporting companies all the way from sort of beer mat idea all the way to exit. And anything we can do to help those companies go further, faster, 
higher along that journey. That kind of defines what we do and what we try and develop services to do. Mm -hmm. You may have just answered the question I'm going to ask, but let me ask it anyway. You know, what's the purpose? Yeah, so the mission has been common from when we started. We're a private sector company, but I mentioned these 500 companies we've supported. Impact they're delivering, their success is our success. Our objective is to grow that, either in terms of numbers of companies we work with, uh, we're looking to sort of move that from like 500 to 2,000 over the next five years, but also to allow them to grow further and make them bigger as well. Because as they grow, as we bring in investment money into them, as we bring in support to them, as we bring in other sides of things, in, in the short term, they create jobs, which is obviously very important in terms of the green growth society. Also, they deliver more impact. They reduce more carbon, if you like, and so on. So in some ways, you know, our market is that ecosystem of companies. It sounds like you've kind of refreshed or refined or renewed sort of how you thought about all that did i get that right yeah i mean i think looking back which is always great sometimes when you look at these things yeah i wouldn't say on day one we had a business plan that said we would be where we are at the moment what's been important is keeping that focus on the mission you know either internally or externally we only work with companies solving climate change and equally important we only work with commercial solutions to climate change so whilst there are many organizations out there that are sort of not for profit Ultimately, they're never going to scale unless they deliver a financial return. They can't attract the private sector capital. And the more capital they can attract, the faster they can grow, the more revenue they make, the more impact they have. Those two things of commercial and sustainable, they're two of our core values. So our original business model, it's now called a venture lab. It didn't used to be called that back in 2011. But we were identifying and spinning out our own ventures. Think of e-car club, which is an electric vehicle car sharing club. We sold that to Europe Car in 2015. We've got another one called PowerVolt, another one called Airex, which is kind of smart air brick that reduces energy consumption in your home by about 25%. And yeah, we sort of effectively founded those companies and span them out and brought them things in. So we, yeah, that was our original model. In 2015, we realised that actually we could take the expertise and the knowledge and the networks we had in the sector and apply it to develop our new sort of incubation model. So I mentioned the various support packages and services we do now. We've built those gradually over the last seven years. And basically because, as you may know, starting your own business is quite time intensive. It's quite exhausting. So we realized we could leverage our knowledge and expertise by working with other people's companies and support along the way without having to do the 101 things that you do if it's your own startup. It sort of was a way to really magnify what sustainable ventures could do by sort of partnering with all these companies. About six companies we span out now to sort of over 500. That number's increasing by about 100, 150 a year. Our short-term mission is to, to hit 1,000 in the next two, three years. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's been some process of thinking about the business model, maybe fine-tuning the, you know, not the mission, but kind of how you're going to execute it. You could describe that as strategy. You could call it something else. How did you go about that? It sounds like there's a group of founder, owners. You know, how does all that work? So as I mentioned, we're still wholly owned by the management team. So we haven't had external investors. On the one hand, that meant when we innovate, you know, very quick sort of, you know, fast failure. Or fast success. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if something's not washing its face, it, we just stop doing it. And we've had a, a few of those things, you know, we, we sort of tried different things and then stopped doing them. The downside to not having external investors is we haven't had any cash to invest. We've grown organically. On the flip side, myself and my co-founder have been able to be sort of wholly in control of what we do and what we don't do. 
we spend a lot of time obviously advising companies we work with, you know, go raise equity. Um, but also as investors, you know, when we're making investments, you know, we're very keen to say focus on your core business and don't experiment outside that. Use our cash to do what you said you're going to do and deliver on that core business. If we'd had an excellent investment, I'm sure they would have said, look, that's great. Why don't you focus on your workspace business and don't focus on setting up an investment fund? So I think what's kind of unique about what we do is that whole sort of ecosystem and, and realise every kind of startup and scale up has its own set of unique needs. And sometimes they need help on fundraising. Sometimes they need help on HR. Sometimes they need affordable space. Sometimes they're looking for community. Sometimes they're looking for networks. Our purpose is to help those companies grow further faster. And how we do that, you know, we can basically take a very customer-centric approach rather than saying, right, that's great. If all we did was workspaces, all we'd be interested in is please come and take some desks here. Now, in many cases, if particularly they're based in Bristol or Manchester, we wouldn't be able to work with them. We wouldn't be able to help them if all we did was workspaces. On the other hand, if we've got an investment fund, they can invest anywhere across the UK. And therefore, it's sort of horses for courses in terms of just taking a kind of customer-centric approach, quite privileged to be able to do and have the freedom to do, despite you know constantly being skinned. You used the word emergent just a little bit ago. And, and to me, that, that sort of brings in the idea of emergent strategy. Is that sort of what you were thinking about? Yeah. So before I moved into the sector, I was at Bain. I think Bain needs to be quite rude about emergent strategy. So obviously, the idea is you sit down, you produce a whole load of analysis, you come up with a sort of set of PowerPoint slides and say, and this is where you should go. I guess, you know, when you're actually sort of in the driving seat, I'm not afraid now to look back and say, okay, these things worked, these things didn't work. We can react to the market, see what people need. So we, we kind of learned from that emergency strategy. We, we've learned to sort of look back and use that to, to inform a better forward-looking strategy. We now know how to do those. And you know, there's a whole suite of new services we're looking at developing now. Like any startup, get to know your audience, work out what their customer needs are. We've learned from our own medicine. We tell people this is what you should do. And we apply that to ourselves as well. Hmm. Hmm. It it does sound to me like you've been on a very interesting journey. It's not uncommon when I work with clients on strategy that they have in their head some model about what doing strategy properly looks like. And it looks a lot like you described. We're going to write lots of analysis and write lots of charts and decks and, you know, all the rest of that. I don't know if you bought into all of that 100% when you were at Bain or not, but it sounds like to some extent you've learned a different way of thinking about what even strategy looks like and how you do it. Yeah, yeah I think so. I mean, what, one of my favorite phrases is, uh, you know, no business plan survives contact with the market. You know, I can still dig out our 50-page business plan that we wrote in our first months. We're very proud of it. It's fantastic. It had all the right things in the marketing and all that kind of stuff. And then we actually got out of the market and trying to work out what works and what didn't work. And it lasted about two meetings. And then we went, okay, by the way, we're going to run out of money unless we actually go and do something. So let's listen to what people actually want and let's sell them that. The strategy bit then is actually understanding all those individual data points. A data point where a customer will write you a purchase order is way more valuable than I've done this brilliant market analysis and I've done this top-down thing. And this is a £50 billion market opportunity. And it turns out that what you're selling can't address that £50 billion market opportunity. Um, or maybe it could, but nobody believes it or whatever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. To my mind, that experience that we have, it makes 
the advice the team give to our clients and startups and scale-ups we work with much more credible because we can say, look, we're not just making this up. We haven't read this in a book somewhere. You know, we've been there ourselves. <laughs> we've got the scars to prove it. Start talking to customers, work out what you can sell from your technology, and then use that to inform your technical development. Yeah, it, it builds that level of trust and sort of credibility. You know, I can impress that on my team members who are out there saying, look, you know, you're kind of an NPS, if you like, you know, promoter score. And that's a key metric in terms of their performance targets and so on. Because anybody can turn the handle and churn out a business plan or an investment strategy that ticks all the right boxes. It's a bit of paper and we can say thanks very much. But again, an investment strategy is only as good as when they actually bring money in the door. Yeah, come back to the purpose. You know, we're not about producing bits of paper. So when money comes in, that means they can hire people, they can deliver more carbon saving technology, um, and that takes to the next stage. So it's hopefully sort of a virtuous circle. One of the things that you're doing that really resonates with me is this insistence that it's got to be commercially viable. It's got to be able to attract initially capital and revenue and customers and you know do you ever find people when they hear about that almost get offended that somehow oh carbon's supposed to be all you know nobody's supposed to be making money or, or do people understand the imperative behind that yeah it's slightly easier now three four years ago when you said actually you know, we're in this industry yes it's great for the planet but also is this huge commercially viable opportunity People either didn't believe you. They were like, look, you're delivering a public good. You're sort of doing this whole thing. You'll hear that now all the time. I mean, obviously in the UK, you know, the whole sort of winding battle on net zero. It's an anathema to me because I'm like, you're missing out on the economic opportunity. Theresa May, who obviously introduced the, the Climate Change Act, and she's adamant. That, yes, we can look, look, all look our, our kids and grandkids in the eye because they'll have a planet to go to. But... You know, actually, it's the growth opportunity. It's the opportunity for the UK to lead the world. And that's been her thing. And that resonates with me massively, which is why I, I simply don't understand the nonsense going around around net zero. You know, this is an economic opportunity. But I, I take your point. I think it's just people can't. It's not that it offends people. I think people just can't get their heads around why doing something that's the right thing to do environmentally is also the right thing to do commercially people always think there's a trade-off between that but you know if i go back sort of you know 20 years ago when i joined the sector lots of people didn't even understand what climate change was all about but the first chart used to be here's a temperature graph of co2 concentrations and a temperature graph of the uk that was always the first chart that you had to put up in any presentation nowadays if you put that up in any sensible forum People who laugh at you like, why are you telling me this? You know, my kids knew this back in high school. So, yeah, the debate has moved on. There's still slight scepticism of anything you do that is better for the planet should cost you more money. I mentioned previous example, Airex. So, you know, sort of energy efficiency in housing is a great one. You know, often there is a cost saving. So, again, go back to my Bane days. You know, if we said, look, if you implement this technology and it will reduce your energy usage by 25%, you will have a long-term cost advantage by doing that. And yes, there's a capital cost of that. But if you can make that payback and you make that investment case, who doesn't like a cost saving? You, know, you could be the biggest climate skeptic in the world, but I'm saying, look, this is going to save you 25% of your energy bill. Why would you not do this for £500 investment in, in Airx? That's that's what it costs to, to, to put in and save yourself 25% of your energy bill. Who doesn't want that? Can you explain the technology behind that, the Airx? Yeah, so um, certainly in the in the UK um, and, and many other countries around the world, 
they have what's called suspended floors. So if you've got sort of floorboards, think about Victorian villas. Most of them, their floor is lifted off the ground. And that means there's a, a kind of an underfloor thing. People put air bricks in. If you walk down a, a terrace street in London, you'll see the things. So they're put there because basically if you don't have them, damp builds up. Yeah, so that's why you have air bricks. Now, the, the way they work is they draw cold air in. Convection lifts that up through the house. And that basically takes the damp out. So that means your floorboards don't rot and your floor joists don't rot. But obviously that cold air coming in and rushing through your house cools it down. Um, so what Airbricks does is swap that dumb air brick for a smart air brick. And what that does is it monitors the humidity. So in simple terms, if it's cold outside, it shuts the air brick and that stops the cold air getting in. And when it's warm outside, it opens the air brick and that allows sort of warm air to ventilate and, and remove the damp. By sort of opening and closing, you stop what's called a stack effect, which is where the sort of the, the huge energy savings come in. Uh, but equally, it means you're controlling damp inside the house. You get the kind of demoisturizing effect without all of the loss of heat effect. Exactly, exactly. So you, you, you trade that off. They call it keeping damp on its toes, basically. Hopefully some people go, why has nobody thought of that before? That's caused some problems with investors because obviously we've got patents around the whole methodology because people are like, that's such a simple idea. Why doesn't everybody do that? It's like, well, it's, <laughs> there's quite a lot of smart technology that sits behind that. So, um, yeah, and they, they've just closed their B round from uh, a range of different investors. They're now really starting to scale. So really, really quite excited about the one. And I assume that's mostly a retrofit, or is that also going into new builds? Basically, it's a kind of retrofit. But 26 million houses in the UK, of which about half of them have these suspended floors. A lot of new builds are just basically solid floors. They've got one that's it's called an air room version, which again is, is it sort of monitoring internal air quality. Rather than having an extractor van, you've got something that's actually sort of smart. And when there's no moisture to be taken out, it'll stop. It'll shut off automatically. Interesting. Interesting. Um so thank you for sort of indulging me in that. that I'm sorry, I'm sitting here, Andrew, a little bit thinking, I need to go find out how many of these I need. <laughs> anyway, um, as you've been on this journey, what have you found sort of most surprising and what's been most difficult? Well, I think certainly it's, it's a sheer range of innovations that are actually tackling climate change. People tend to think about renewables. They think, you know, offshore wind, potentially. They may think about a lot about solar panels and say it's all about energy generation. One aspect was we have five verticals we focus on. So we have got what's called future energy, which is kind of distributed energy. Um, but it's a building technology. So you get into sort of insulation of houses, a company called Biophilica. And what they've done is developed a technology that takes basically kind of, uh, what's it, leaves or sort of biomass material, but yet often sort of leaves. And they've got a thing where they basically turn that into synthetic leather. So it's kind of leaves to leather. So obviously leather, as you may know, is, is like hugely environmentally destructive, using lots of water, lots, lots of poison and so on. And this basically is synthetic. And it, it, the, the leather is almost indistinguishable from natural leather. It's got the same sort of flex properties and so on. They've developed a process that basically takes that kind of leaf material, if you like, where they're basically producing strips, you know, sort of a couple of meters wide, which can then just could be sent off to turn into, you know, car seats or bags or whatever. I bring that that's just one example of the kind of companies we work with. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing where that's obviously having a massive environmental impact, big impact on, on climate change, but is a million miles away from a, a solar panel. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting. Andrew, you mentioned these five verticals. How did you select those five? So I was at Carbon Trust before this, and we did something basically trying to map carbon emissions to end usage. So a lot of carbon emissions, if you look at government reports, are you know, here's something from the manufacturing sector, here's something from the retail sector. And actually, if you take that and try and map that down to what people are actually consuming, so if you look at you know, a typical person, how much carbon they emit. So obviously, a big part of you live in a house, and therefore you know, 25% of what you emit is from you. You drive a car. So another 25% comes from your transport usage. Then actually, the third one, maybe surprisingly, is kind of the embedded carbon as a consumer you use comes in through your front door from your Tesco deliveries, basically food and drink. So if we want to reduce carbon, we shouldn't be thinking about um, you know energy generation and industrial. They have, they have a place for that. Equally, if we really want to tackle it, we have to get down to what consumers are actually generating. If you do that and you look at our five verticals, they basically cover about 80% of the carbon from a consumer point of view. So built environment, um, so mobility, particularly e-mobility, and thinking about shared mobility and kind of new forms of mobility. We look at what's called circular economy. So circular economy can be sort of you know clothes swapping and things like that. And how do we find things that are substituting for materials, and so on. So that's, that's where biophilic probably comes into that side of things. And then we've got food and agritech, and then future energy, but the most obvious one. <laughs> so that's digitized energy as well. Yeah. Did you get to that by sort of looking at the areas, you know, the companies you were already supporting and going, where are the commonalities? Or did you do it by looking at this sort of a consumer's carbon consumption and going well we need to cover this that or was it some other way yeah I, you know i have a chart that i wrote back in 2011 that said okay these are the five different areas and i can shade the bar graph and i can say 80 percent of the carbon footprint is, is covered by these five areas but equally we then went out and started looking at the companies we worked with the companies who wanted to be in the workspace the companies we we're investing in and group those into these five areas. If somebody's looking at something that optimizes the grid, that's future energy, that's digitized, that really works for us. So it's a shortcut for us to look at it going rather than actually understanding each individual technology, we can basically use that classification to say, that's great. We're, you know, we're 99% sure that that'll work for us. Right. Something that's a particular interest of mine, because I think it's one of the big difficult issues that's just getting kicked down the road. Domestic gas boiler. Is there any any hope, any light? Yeah, I mean, obviously that's, you know, it's, it's such a huge thing. So first of all, Schoon, who's looking at kind of heat pumps, it's run by a guy who, who was formerly at Apple, and he's trying to take that Apple mentality and come up with an integrated solution that is almost a one-stop shop. The great thing about Apple is everything works all together. You know, the website and the iTunes, all that kind of stuff work together. And he's trying to use that same philosophy in terms of installing a heat pump. He's looking at saying, okay, let's take a look at your house. Let's work out your heat pump. Actually, you need a bit of insulation. Maybe you need some energy storage because you need cheap overnight electricity to make your heat pump work better. You're buying a heat pump and an integrated system. There's a lack of consumer awareness and trust there. 
He's trying to get that kind of experience, almost system innovation. So that's your kind of one-stop shop. But equally, we launched an energy storage company. So energy storage is key to, to a decarbonized home. Particularly if you've got solar panels, it, almost making your home self-sufficient in energy uh, and a sort of a, a, an energy storage device there is, is kind of the heart of that. The alternatives to obviously heat pumps, the, the, the obvious one, uh, we were a company called Topeo, which is just basically electric heating. And they've got an integrated, um, basically replaces your boiler. It's the same size as a d- normal domestic boiler. It uses electric heat and electric heat storage. Literally, is plug and play. You sort of take your boiler out, put it back in. If they've gone through trials, they're into production and so on. The heat pumps, the problem is, is, is where do you put it? To be honest, I face the same problem in my house is that I can't work out where do I put my heat pump because you know, I don't have space outside that isn't next to the neighbours and that kind of stuff. I practice what I preach. My long-suffering wife has put it with smart thermostats and energy storage devices sitting in the spare room and that kind of stuff. So I don't mind being a guinea pig on my own uh, technologies. But yeah. Sure. Um, Andrew, one of the things that strikes me is in a whole number of ways, you're sort of at the frontier. In your own domestic life, you're kind of at the frontier about using some of these new technologies. I think you're at the frontier about a new model for helping startups and scale-ups. And then obviously just on the whole kind of climate change thing, we don't know the answers yet. You're in lots of ways, you're you're driving that forward. I'm just curious if you were looking at a business leader for a different organization that was wanting to be on the frontier. Is there any advice you'd give? Is there any kind of things you've learned about how to stay sane and vaguely healthy? (laughs) (laughs) The one advantage we have is the sector. The fantastic thing about being here in this sort of this kind of workspace is that everybody has a, a similar kind of purpose. And so that kind of commonality, if you go into WeWork, for example, or another workspace, everybody's doing lots of different things. There's no common topic to talk about when they have a drink after work. Nobody's directly competing with each other because we've got people who are looking at food, we're looking at people who are looking at energy efficiency. You know, they're all trying to sort of do the right thing and therefore they work together and collaborate. So having that commonality of interest in the companies you work with, what we want to do is provide grant support to any company that works in the door or we'll provide desks to anybody who comes in the door. And being able to sort of be disciplined and saying, actually, what are the things these people have in common? So therefore, you know, I think we have credibility in terms of that side of things. It doesn't necessarily need to be impact. This is the whole cluster theory of, you know, the successful innovation clusters. You know, it's where you bring lots of people together. And they've worked in fintech, they've worked in tech in general. And you can see those all over the world. It's that specialization. So I think... Pick something like that, because I think if you try and be too generalist um, and try and be all things to everybody, eventually you'll go off message and eventually you'll lose that distinctive, like USPs. There are similar organisations to what we do um, who do some of the things we do, but not everybody takes that kind of holistic, that kind of ESA. But I've never heard anybody else use the kind of beer mat to exit approach. That being the, you know, what, what do I do to help my customers get further on that journey? You know, there's lots of probably more successful VCs that have raised much more money than we have. You know, who are fantastic at what they do. They're, they're VCs, but they are VCs, and therefore they're quite narrowly defined in terms of what their success is. And that's all about you know IRR and buying and selling companies. And I don't begrudge them that they're, they're fantastic at that. And it's very helpful for us to, that there are people who like in our network who have that focus. If there are any VCs listening, you know, 
ultimately they are there for their customers and their customers are the, their LPs and their investors. Their customers are not their portfolio companies. They very rarely say that and their websites will never say that. But ultimately, these are companies you put money into and you try and take more money out of. It's a fantastic business model, but that's not, that's not all we do. What I like about what you're doing is you've brought a very clear commercial model into something that often I think gets very muddy. Yes, exactly. Um, but the other thing I think is you're really using the power of kind of informal collaboration and idea sharing around a, a broader cause, which I think is really great. From a personal point of view, it's quite motivating. We'll have all the marketing managers we'll all get together we don't arrange it and you get people who at the later stage who are a bit more mature have got more experience we're helping people who are just you know even don't have marketing it's the ceo who's turned up right it just happens i'll be absolutely honest we, we can't monetize that but it's, it's part of the thing that brings this community together ultimately i'm being absolutely brutal about this that means that people like to be here we have a lower churn because of that people go i can't get that sort of informal advice from my peers and therefore they stay as a workspace that's key to our commercial success as well so it's kind of win-win for everybody i think and it's a great model i think a way forward around how do you build clusters how do you build expertise how do you build things that are really going to change the world i just think it's a great sort of in some ways living experiment for doing that in a different way yeah, well, well, hopefully, um, I think, um, so our, our next phase, we are, after 12 years of bootstrapping, uh, we are taking external investment, and we're using that to fund the expansion of what we do here in London. Our vision is, is to move into between six and eight regions across the UK in the next five years. Replicating the ecosystem, it's not replicating the workspace. Sometimes it will be built around a workspace that brings people together. You know, it, it's that, how do we go into Manchester, for example? But again, working with the local government, working with the regional government, working with the stakeholders, working with you know, people who obviously create jobs, create wealth up there, bringing those communities of people with a common interest together. Yeah, so my, my role is going to very, very much change. Now we have other people's money that we're responsible for. Sounds great. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing both the kind of exciting ideas that are in the companies you're working with, but also kind of your own business and what it's doing and, and a bit of your personal journey. So really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Mm -hmm.